from ED.net. Welcome along to this week's edition of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Luke Nichols here at ED's headquarters in West Sussex. On today's show, we head up to the big smoke to chat sustainable deliveries with Doddle. You can imagine the difficulty of delivering 50 parcels to 50 different front doors versus delivering 50 parcels to one front door, which is Doddles. It removes a huge amount of hassle. The delivery driver has an easier life, but more importantly, it takes vans off the road. And certainly, uh, we'd like to think it does our little bit for the environment as well. And we grab a bite to eat with the new chief executive of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, who gives us his views on some of the biggest sustainability challenges facing Britain's food service industry. Running a a small organisation or an organisation of any size that tries to engage with that range of issues and think, well, what should I do about that and where do I stand? is really, really tough. I think it's tougher than it felt a few years ago. And the rest of the ED editorial team are here on hand in the studio to round up some of the latest green innovations and sustainability success stories that are driving the green economy. So yes, hello and welcome along to this week's edition of Sustainable Business Covered. It's the 19th of August and I'm joined here in our makeshift podcast studio as ever um, by ED senior reporter Matt Mace and reporter George Ogilby. How are we guys? Very good, Nicky. Yeah, good stuff. Feeling... Um, Sporty now with the Olympics, and um, I mean they're drawing to a close now. The Premier League seasons, obviously. I I have been uh, practicing my triple jump out in the back garden. Yeah, <laughs> don't have any sand pits though, so it's been painful. How was your last time we spoke? You were just about to head off to the Edinburgh Festival. How was it? It was uh, it was very good actually. We did have a, a press release come through. I noticed about some sort of green award for uh, for the fringe. Mm. I think they were like pulling out the greenest mm. kind of shows there. I didn't see any of them. <laughs> <laughs> We've, uh, yeah, we had a couple, I had another release today about another festival. Lots of festivals going green and trying to champion the kind of green green side of things. Um, but yeah, it's been a couple of good weeks from the sporting perspective. Um, weather's been nice up until today. I did feel like summer had kicked in, but now it's gone away again. But also from a work perspective, I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but it's felt quite uh, refreshing over the last couple of weeks um, in terms of the stories we've been writing about what I'm particularly liking at the moment is the fact that the government's still in recess and we're not having to write so much about green policy changes and criticism of ministers or the UK's failures in certain areas. Um, it's quite nice just to be focusing on real sort of CSR initiatives and, and focusing on our readers, I guess, and the sustainability success stories that are everywhere to be found, which I'm sure George will fill us in on later on. But for now, let's begin with this week's two big podcast interviews. Um, last week, the audio recorder was handed over to you, Matt, for a few interviews, and this week it was my turn. Uh, I managed to arrange yeah, a couple of interviews for Tuesday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, um, up in London, and both were taking place within half an hour of each other, so it was a bit of a rush. And they were on very different different subjects, which was quite difficult from the interview interviewing perspective. But the first was uh, a chat with a company that I've actually been really interested in for some time now and that's Doddle. Have you heard of Doddle? Either of you? You've got, you've got a quiz, quizzical a, look on you. It's just a character on the magic, magic roundabout. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> no, so Doddle is, uh, is essentially a consolidated delivery firm. It's just as fun, just as interesting. Um, it has dedicated delivery stores. You probably have seen it. It's kind of got purple branding. It's little kind of got little outlets in in and around train stations and shopping centres across the UK and it essentially works as a mailbox so rather than delivery drivers having to stop at each individual home address they can it's delivered directly to the dollar store so as an example which they use on their website in 14 minutes they say a van driver can make four deliveries to homes or 50 deliveries to one dollar store and if that's scaled up then to you know over the course of a 10 hour shift say um, then that's the difference between 133 parcels being delivered to homes versus 600 deliveries to Doddle stores. Um, so the environmental impact of this type of delivery is huge. Um, thousands of vans could be taken off the roads every day and congestion is reduced. And where this gets really interesting um, in the chat that we have is that they recently launched a service called Doddle Neighbour, which is essentially the sharing economy for delivery. And it's all about that uh, the last metre of delivery, as they put it, not the last mile, but the last metre which essentially allows individuals and businesses to earn income by delivering parcels to others 
in their local community. Now, I know what you're thinking, Matt, this crosses, crosses paths with NIMBA. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there is a bit of an overlap with, uh, between Doddle and NIMBA in that kind of sharing economy space. But uh, what, was, what was great interesting with this was Doddle really embraced that um, overlap and welcome more disruptive sharing economy-based business models in the delivery space, which is really refreshing to hear. Anyway, I'm giving away too much of the game here. Um, so let's get straight into the interview. This is a sort of 20-minute or so chat with Doddle's chief customer officer, Paddy Earnshaw. Um, we're in quite a busy restaurant in London. Uh, we have quite a wide-ranging chat about the sustainability challenges and enablers within the delivery space. And Matt, you'll be pleased to hear we did also get to discuss Pokemon Go for a, for a moment. Asking the important questions, <laughs> like that. So, uh, yeah, that's in the discussion, so listen out for that. Um, anyway, here's my chat about green deliveries with Doddle's Paddy Earnshaw. So, uh, here we are at the Great Northern Hotel in uh, King's Cross, up in uh, Plum and Spilt Milk, the uh, restaurant just above uh, the hotel. Uh, I'm joined by Paddy Earnshaw from Doddle, and actually just overlooking King's Cross, we can see a, a Doddle store, I think, just about there. Um, so, welcome Paddy. Thank you, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, people may still be, listeners may still be unaware of Doddle, the business model. Uh, perhaps you could just begin by giving us a brief descriptor of Doddle, how it works and, and what you do within it. Of course. Um, I'm hoping that a number of the commuters listening to the podcast have, uh, have come across Doddle at some point. But for those that, that aren't aware, Doddle uh, is a business that's been going a couple of years now. Um, with the sole purpose of trying to help people uh, find an s- easy way to collect their parcels when they're either not at home or unable to have them delivered to the office. In addition, uh, Doddle provides a service where people can send parcels or return items that aren't quite right back to retailers. And the premise is that we put Doddle stores in highly convenient locations, in and around train stations, and where there's good footfall, and people then use those services to save themselves time rather than having to go and queue during their lunch hours to go and collect a parcel from somewhere where they don't want to be. Okay, and I mean, as a business, its growth has been pretty rapid, hasn't it? How many locations are you in now? It's been good. Uh, we've got 55 locations now. Mm-hmm. We have uh, the, pre- the predominant growth came from opening uh, dollar stores in and around train stations, but we've started to expand our network now to include... Uh, some retail concessions, so we have uh, some concessions in B&Q stores and uh, in a couple of supermarkets, uh, and we'll continue to see uh, see this growth uh, over the coming years, we hope. Mm. Um, what do you do within Doddle? That's a good question. Uh, so I'm the Chief Customer Officer, so for those people that haven't come across Doddle, it's probably my fault, so apologies. Uh, I should try harder. Uh, I'm in charge of making sure that people understand our uh, our reason for being and therefore uh, I have to try and encapsulate the pain of consumers all around the world with finding failed deliveries uh, and those sorry you were out cards on their doorstep and trying to convert them to becoming a Doddle customer mm. uh, and then coming back for a second time. Mm. And so, I mean, why are we interested in Doddle on the Sustainable Business Cover podcast? Well, um, it's because this consolidated delivery approach has um, a significantly lower environmental impact than traditional home delivery um, as it essentially avoids the need for drivers um, to have to stay on the roads and, and stop at each individual home address. Is that is that right? Am I getting that right? That's right, yeah, no, you, you cracked it, you cracked the business model. <laughs> um, obviously we, we started Doddle for a couple of reasons. One was clearly to try and take away this consumer pain of missing deliveries and having to waste your time on a Saturday morning uh, queuing up somewhere. But the, but the other reason is clearly there's a an advantage to the logistics industry of finding a consolidated point for delivery companies to bring parcels to. And at all times, uh, consumers, both consumers and retailers, are looking for really, really convenient places to drop parcels off. And I guess the most simple example I can give you is uh, you can imagine the difficulty from just living uh, nowadays of delivering 50 parcels to 50 different front doors versus delivering 50 parcels to one front door which Mm. is Doddles Mm. Um, it removes a huge amount of hassle 
the delivery driver has an easier life, but more importantly, uh, it takes vans off the road, uh, and, and certainly uh, we'd like to think uh, does our little bit for the environment as well. Mm. Yeah, and potentially when um, scaled up, you're talking a lot of vans, it, can, it could be taking off the road. I mean, I noticed that Dodder had recently done some analysis into this, and um, I think it was a news article on your own website that yep. suggested that if that consolidated approach was applied to the whole UK delivery market, which yep. I think we're talking, you know, one billion deliveries in the UK That's estimated right. in 2016, they estimated 18,696 vans taken off the road every day. Um, so, you know, almost 3,000 tons of CO2 uh, negated every single day. Um, also, you've got the congestion, um, which is potentially reduced. So, I mean, just looking broadly then, Paddy, at the delivery market, yeah. those are big numbers. What do you think really needs to happen to, to get it to a point where the entire delivery sector is understanding that, acknowledging that, and actually trying to tackle it? Are we at that point already? I think it would be difficult, um, it would be difficult to suggest that the carrier companies aren't already aware of this. They are absolutely aware and I think that they, they do everything that they possibly can uh, to try and help the to try and help make themselves sustainable. I think the natural benefit of Doddle is that we we're the company that's taken the punt to put stores in really convenient places to help these uh, logistics businesses offer a consolidated delivery. You've then got to get loads of people buying into Doddle and thinking, well, actually, this is a great thing for me because I save time, but also I'm doing my little bit for the environment. I think if you then look at the way that you know, our business is growing uh, and the rate at which people are adopting it, clearly there's something bigger at play than just saving time here. So I think people do buy into the fact that they're doing a little bit uh, to try and make the world slightly more sustainable. I think, interestingly, uh, our parcel... So the, the carrier companies who are delivering the parcels also buy into that as well, and will often be uh, will often be happy uh, to send parcels into the double stores, namely because they can at least reference the fact that they're part of a parcel network. In fact, the carrier companies are setting up their own parcel networks to try and offer some form of consolidation. Mm. Clearly, there's a, a book to be made in it as well, but at least they're looking at the angles to try and make themselves more approachable mm. to consumers. Yeah, and um, we mentioned that you know a billion estimated UK deliveries um, mm. this year, driven largely by the online retail market. Yep. Uh, a well-known problem within that delivery space is that of the last mile, yeah. um, that movement of goods to a final destination, um, which is often very difficult um, with people being away from home. Um, so, within that space, I was actually on the way up here. I was searching around kind of solutions and did actually just come stumble across Doddle Neighbour. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that as a concept. Well, Doddle Neighbour is an extension of uh, the, the Doddle concept. The reality is that uh, it would be very, very difficult for a business like Doddle to scale at the pace at which we're seeing consumers demand the service by providing stores uh, in every locality. We we looked at the marketplace and we, we, saw one in, we saw one interesting thing happening, which is um, people are finding uh, members of, uh, of their community, people on their streets, uh, they're finding ways to get them to take their parcels in. And it struck us as slightly odd that in this modern world there wasn't a way to harness that energy. Mm. And so we asked ourselves the question, are you the person on your street that seems to collect parcels for everyone else? Well, if that's the case, isn't it about time you got paid to do so? And interestingly, Doddle Neighbour was born off the back of this insight. So if you imagine the Doddle stores serve as a hub location, and then off that hub location there's a series of neighbours who can deliver a service into a local community whereby they can come and collect parcels for their neighbours from the Doddle store and then during uh, typically the evenings they'll be in and around anyway because they might not have kids, they might be in families uh, or they might be uh, retired and they will effectively deliver a service for people uh, by taking their parcels in and handling, handling that collection for them. When you said all that, I was immediately thinking about Nimba, another mm. delivery model. Is there, a, is there a kind of a direct crossover there? I noticed there's a, just a slight difference, isn't there, because Doddle, you're collecting it directly from a Doddle store and then delivering, is that right? But there is a bit of a crossover with model. 
Yeah, there is. So uh, the guys at Nimbra are super interesting because they are looking at peer-to-peer uh, uh, ways of handling uh, the movement of goods. So effectively, if you want to, uh, you can either ask someone to move an item for you by putting uh, the fact that you want to move, for instance, say, I don't know, a mattress from uh, Brighton to Manchester. Or indeed, you can pitch the other way of offering your service out uh, based in those areas. We've spent some time talking to guys at Nimbo who we think are really interesting about whether they can help fulfil that last metre moment. So you talk about the last mile, everyone talks about the last mile. It doesn't, I mean, what does it really mean? Actually, people want the physical item in their hands and they want it at a time that's convenient to them. Nimbo provides a really cool way of doing that. And so the way I would equate it is if you imagine uh, when you book an Uber, there are different ways of booking an Uber. You can have an Uber Lux, you can have a, an Uber X and then you have the economy version or the luxury version. What Nimba does brilliantly is it gives a very, very personal service at potentially economy prices because mm. it's people who are on their way, making journeys, taking parcels uh, around and about for them. That would be a cool way of getting parcels into neighbours' hands for Doddle. Mm. So you don't see Nimba as a, a rival, you see it more as a, another company that you're embracing in this... Yeah, well, I think we're all in it together. Yeah. Uh, if I, if we were big enough and uh, ugly enough to be arrogant uh, and think that we could dominate the UK parcel landscape, I think we'd have more problems than we uh, than we were aware of. We definitely see Nimba as uh, as a friend in this environment. And actually, the hardest thing is trying to figure out how to work together when you're just trying to keep the lights on in your own stores uh, and keep your people happy and keep customers delighted and keep coming back. So I would say watch this space for. Uh, for any advances with Nimbo. Hmm. Let's talk about Amazon then. They've recently launched uh, Flex, which is um, in this space as well. It's an example of an incumbent actually embracing this type of change and, and getting on board with it. And um, it's a very proactive move by them into this space. How do you receive that? It's exciting. It's really exciting. I think if, you know, if I could try and think about why they're doing it ultimately comes down to a simple reason which is customer choice and in everything that Amazon does is about providing customers with the easiest way to get hold of their things Um, whether that's their e-com checkout whether it's the way they fulfill those orders so it's quite interesting what will what will be clear though is that there has to be uh, a way for people who are busy to handle ultimately the receipt of their items Mm. and that's where Doddle will always have a role Mm. because the world is not getting less busy, people are not getting less mobile and you can have as many delivery people in the world running parcels around uh, all over the country but at some point the two people have to meet, the delivery person has to meet the individual Mm. because if they don't they're going to leave it somewhere and we know from our own examples of just taking a stroll through Facebook on a daily basis there are a number of examples of people not being particularly fond of the places that parcels are left. Mm. So as long as people still keep caring about what they get delivered, uh, as long as people still keep moving then I think that there will always be a place for uh, for everyone to work together. Mm. And you mentioned Amazon as a, as a you know, partner of yours. Mm. You mentioned earlier as well that, um, that Doddles are appearing now more in, in, in retail concourses. Um, as the future of your business model goes, do you see yourself moving more into that kind of retail space and working directly with retailers or having more individual kind of standalone hubs or kind of a bit of both? I think it has to be a mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, without wanting to bore your listeners and reduce the, uh, the, uh, the audience down to nil. Uh, it's cost effective for us to partner with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's not the cheapest thing in the world to open uh, stores in the busiest locations in the UK, but we had to do it to build the brand, and I think we've done an amazing job of it. What is now an opportunity is to work with people to deliver further customer convenience in different locations, and we'll continue to do that alongside uh, High Street, uh, partners uh, and of course you know, interestingly places like Westfield uh, have been uh, really really uh, successful for us so we have a great story in Westfield Stratford um, and you wouldn't necessarily have thought of putting a parcel shop within a shopping centre yeah. but bizarrely uh, it's worked out very well as people mix their e-com uh, life during the week sort their deliveries out for the weekend and then come do a spot of shopping there it's mm. done quite well mm. and sticking with Amazon actually mm. um, 
Prime Air is something that's uh, come across us fairly recently. Um, this is obviously the kind of drone-based delivery service. Um, how do, what do you make of that when you first heard that that was actually going to become a potentially become a reality here in the UK? Yeah, it's a great question. I could so when you first said uh, Amazon have gone to the skies, I can see the sense in them buying Boeing jets to move parcels around uh, very quickly. Mm. From a drone perspective, these guys have got the cash to in, innovate and invest in a space that they think is interesting. Where do we see it? You know, for those areas of the UK that are super difficult to fulfil items to, I think there is a place for drones. Uh, the Isle of Skye uh, is not a particularly successful area for people to logistically operate uh, fulfilment uh, uh, methods into. That said, I guess you know, as we talk about it in the office, we find it quite intriguing to think what might happen with parcels being delivered by drone in and around busy locations. So, for instance. Uh, do they drop them to your front door or to your back door? What happens if there's robber drones or thieving drones who come and nick the parcels mm. whilst you're out? I just It's a world as yet that we haven't really been given that much of a glimpse of, mm. but they'll continue to test it, uh, they'll continue to trial it, and I'm sure that uh, if they think there's something in it, then there must be something in it. But at the moment, I'm pretty comfortable with people still coming to our stores to meet our people and having a face-to-face conversation yeah well, the doddle drone does have a bit of a ring to it though doesn't it? the doddle drone uh i think the doddle drone probably uh sums up the uh the uh, the answers i've been giving <laughs> for the last sort of 10 minutes um so i just wanted to talk really quickly actually when we were you mentioned kind of this all being kind of a peer-to-peer based um network and and business models here with nimber and yourselves one another example of something peer-to-peer based that's kind of an example of an interconnected world that people have clearly been engaged with recently is Pokemon Go. Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, just because just from my perspective, I mean, that really sums up what can be done on quite a monumental scale if you can get everyone engaged with the same platform. We spoke to Ari from Nimbra about this yeah. recently, and he said he was, you know, he's really interested by that growth, and he said, what about the potential of actually getting a person that's like perhaps a user of Pokemon Go to actually be able to deliver and actually make money for a delivery that way. Yeah. Do you ever, do you, I mean, how have you seen the sort of Pokemon Go economy? Well, I saw that, I saw that people were actually paying individuals to go around uh, finding mm. Pokemon for mm. them, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> incredible. Um, not one to be shy of jumping on the bandwagon. We placed a few Pokemon lures in and around the stores to oh, attract yeah. some footfall, which is particularly handy when you're around a train station and mm. people are waiting for delayed trains. Um, I think it's really exciting. I think at the end of the day, it's really difficult to put your finger on exactly why something takes off versus mm. something else. Mm. What's cool is it's got a mixture of VR... Uh, within it which is kind of interesting for everyone and with the use of mobile phones now people have got access to it I also think that people just like to get involved uh, and like to be uh, like to feel as though they're at the cutting edge of something Mm. and so if businesses feel as though they want to use uh, entertainment methods to make them more attractive I think that's a great thing at the end of the day I think one thing is true, which is if you deliver an economic service, it's great, but it's only great in the short term. And seeing as though we're talking about sustainability, the real brands uh, that will succeed out there will build sustainable businesses based on experience. Mm. And if experience means involving cool things like Pokemon Go, I think that's a really great thing to be doing. Mm. And who would we be to ignore this global phenomenon? Mm. And you've I mean, talking about those big, big brands, big incumbent businesses, you've worked at some previous businesses that are you know, very well established, been around for years. How would you kind of, if you almost placed yourself in a, in a company that was an incumbent in this market, how would you kind of interpret this sort of level of disruptive innovation that's now happening? Do you think it's something that these, it obviously suits, what I'm saying is it suits the companies that have the model inherently built into it, but it's very difficult for a business, I suppose, that is um, used to more traditional methods to suddenly adjust. I mean, do you think that that's kind of an inalienable... Adjust to Doddle or adjust to Pokemon? (laughs) Adjust to 
Doddle, the likes of Doddle, the yeah. likes of Nimber, these kind of sharing economy businesses that are really starting to disrupt markets. You're seeing Amazon make the shift now. I yeah. mean, are we going to soon start seeing Royal Mail get on board with these kind of changes? Or Perhaps. Mm. I think everyone's looking at the space. Mm. So the shared economy uh, principles will continue to drive market interest because it's a cost-effective way of scaling. Uh, I think that ultimately, I think businesses like innovation. Uh, it's why acquisition takes place. It's it's why businesses buy other businesses because typically they don't necessarily have what they see uh, in others as a core part of their business, but they know they need to make sure they're not left uncompetitive. And so, uh, one of the exciting things of working for a business like Doddle is that you do feel as though you are starting to change the category. Uh, are we absolutely convinced that it's the right thing to do? Yes. Do we know if it's going to work? Um, we're pretty confident. Are we seeing great customer adoption? Definitely. Is there still a part of us that wakes at night? 100%. Mm. Um, but it's exciting to think that we might be just changing the world a tiny bit. Yeah, and surfing that wave of change rather than being one that's behind it. It must be exciting to be on, on at the front line of these kind of this, this change. Absolutely. Mm. I think that's not to say, though, that... that large businesses aren't getting better at innovating you just have to look at um, you know whether it's the labs that are set up within uh, some of the larger brands in the UK that are looking to drive innovation I think you know everyone's conscious that they have to be looking uh, to the future and, and proofing their business to make sure they're not left behind what's what is true though is that uh, real innovation comes from a customer need mm. and it's the people that listen best to their customers I think that will drive ultimately the biggest change in whatever category it is they choose to, mm. to, to, to be an entrepreneur with it. Okay, and sticking with that theme of real innovation and actually stepping out of the delivery market perhaps here, I just wanted to get from your perspective, is there anything that, that you look at, any other particular businesses, industries, business models that excites you, that sort of makes you think that's a great example of a business that's really cracked kind of sustainability and innovation? So I, we, you know, we talked about it before uh, we came on air. I thought, I think Deliveroo is really interesting. Um, for the very simple fact that it's totally opened up the market of uh, being able to eat a meal that you want in your own home from your favourite restaurant and, and to be able to order it right now um, is, is so cool. That's just an, it's an amazing uh, change in the way that we live our lives. Um, I'm, I think... I'm quite intrigued by craft brewers. Now, this sounds like uh, more of a social thing than a, than a commercial thing, but I like the fact that uh, businesses are being born where they're absolutely obsessed about the end product. And craft brewers are quite an interesting one because the, the levels of uh, sophistication that these guys are going into, who, who could just be ex-city uh, folk, setting up their own little brewery uh, I think it's intriguing so you only have to look at the uh, the beers that are coming out in and around London the g- number of gin manufacturers in South London is insane um, not suggesting that uh, that the UK is a lush market but ultimately I do like the fact that people are really bothered about their product yeah yeah Interesting. Um, okay, so just to end then, I mean, we've talked uh, VR, we've talked uh, peer-to-peer kind of based models, um, we've talked drones. For you, I mean, the, the future of the UK delivery market, where do you kind of see things in, say, three to five years' time from a sustainability perspective? Do you see more businesses taking this kind of doddle approach? I think ultimately customers will choose the, the best option for them. Uh, I do think that as the roads get busier and as the UK uh, has less and less space, people are going to have to find other options. And so I'm confident in the future uh, for collection points like Doddle and being part of a sustainable economy. I think what's interesting and and something that we are intrigued by is whether there will be any level of uh, government uh, uh, sort of view on on whether all of these deliveries to home is necessarily a great thing. So the sheer level of vans on the street is becoming a concern. And last year, Boris Johnson spoke openly about his concerns for the number of white vans hitting the square mile. 
One of the questions that we are asking ourselves is whether that will become more of a macro challenge for the UK and actually whether there will need to be some intervention to try and help reduce the sheer levels of vehicles on the road and the congestion that goes with it, Mm. let alone the environmental challenges that that Mm. brings with it. Mm. So who knows? Um, But I certainly think that uh, customers will choose and, uh, and they will tend to make a personal choice first with potentially an environmental choice second mm. and and doddle within that market you you hope to expand further and continue the kind of rapid growth that we've seen over the last it has years. to uh because i have a wife and two children <laughs> uh, but more importantly i think we i think we've captured a mood in the uk economy the macro growth of online retail will continue to uh way exceed the bricks and mortar uh, retail growth and I think that for Doddle that is an amazing opportunity um, not just in the UK but further afield Perfect, well on that note thank you very much uh, Paddy Anshaw, um, we'll speak again soon no doubt, thanks very much for your time Thanks, thanks mate Very interesting there I'm sure you'll agree and Paddy and I actually did continue to have a good chat after that recording about the company's plans for the future and they really do come across as a company that's genuinely concerned about the broader sustainability challenges and wants to drive change not from just within the industry but also at a green policy level as well so it'll be interesting to see how things continue to progress there with Doddle. Anyway now so I'll move swiftly on to the second interview of the show Um, and I emphasise the word swiftly there because it was a swift transition from me on Tuesday up from King's Cross to Soho or down from King's Cross to Soho Um, but yeah I had a brief 30 minutes to dart across for the lunch with the new chief executive of the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Um, Now this is a bit of a step change from talking about the delivery market to discussing restaurants and food service businesses but that's how we like to do things on the Sustainable Business Covered show, we're covering it from all angles I suppose. Anyway we received a press release um, about the appointment of the Sustainable Restaurant Association's new CEO Andrew Stephen a couple of weeks ago now. and I think that came across to you, Matt, and I might have flagged it up. It did, probably. yes. And uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to jump on Andrew just 12 days, I think, into his new role and ask him all about it. This is another nice, in-depth, 20-minute chat, and we discuss all of the challenges and enablers surrounding the UK restaurant and food service industry. No Pokemon Go here, Matt, um, but we do talk about green innovation, which I know you're a big mm-hmm. fan of. And more broadly, we discuss the future of food sustainability and how businesses are going to have to manage that global challenge of feeding 9 billion people by the middle of the century. So anyway, here's my chat with the SRA's chief executive, Andrew Stephen, in full. So uh, I've moved on now from King's Cross to the heart of Soho, and I'm actually currently sat in the members club area of the house of st barnabas uh, which is fascinating grade one listed georgian property essentially helps london's homeless get back into work quite a fitting place to have a chat about sustainability and csr and i'm joined here in, in this area by andrew stephen the new chief executive of the sustainable restaurant association andrew how are you i'm very good thanks Luke. thanks for joining me good stuff um now i'm aware that this is only your i think this is your third week into your 12 days, yeah. 12 days, okay. days, not weeks. (laughs) Okay, so uh, obviously you've been a busy couple of weeks then. Um, I'll go easy on you. Um, But actually, I mean, I suppose being in in the role so fresh into it actually allows you to provide a nice outsider perspective on the current state of sustainability within the food service industry and really discuss where you want to take the Sustainable Restaurant Association in the future. Um, But let's start with you. Andrew, what... Where were you before joining the SRA and then what attracted you to this new venture? So I was just um, up the hill in Islington and uh, you know it's all downhill towards Solo on the bike from here. um, (laughs) Previous to joining the SRA I've been working for Two Degrees which I guess uh, some of your subscribers would know well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a director there um, helping them build out their um, products and uh, client service offering. So in, in real terms I was working on some big projects for people like Unilever and Asda thinking about how to cut energy, water, wastes um, within their supply chains. So very much from the sort of sustainability world. Uh, before that, I was running a film production company called Casual Films um, for um, some good friends of mine, Nick and Barnaby Cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, they really specialised in sustainability and CSR filmmaking as well. So I guess through our clients, they're uh, 
did a lot of thinking, a lot of work around um, how people are responding to sustainability challenges. Okay. Um, I guess what uh, attracted me to the SRA is that, you know, having come from essentially being agency side or supplier side for the last sort of 10 or 15 years, um, it's fantastically exciting to be involved in leading an organisation that has so much of its own stuff um, and can offer so much value to so many other organisations rather than working one client at a time. Hmm. And um, I mean, for anyone listening to this podcast who perhaps isn't aware of the organisation, the Sustainable Restaurant Association is membership-based, um, it's not-for-profit, and essentially helps restaurants and food service outlets become more sustainable and helps diners make more sustainable choices when, when dining out. Membership has grown from 50 sites back in 2010 to more than 6,000 now. Um, so there's clearly a huge uptake in terms of the number of restaurants that are, at the very least, interested in becoming more sustainable. But Andrew, in the press release we were recently sent on your appointment at the SRA, um, the quote you give in that release starts by saying, while the challenges are greater than ever before, more people want to eat genuinely good food when they dine out. So what are those challenges you speak of and why are they greater than ever before yeah thanks thanks for the summary uh, <laughs> you can come again <laughs> I, I guess um, when we talk about the challenges being greater than ever before we're, we're talking about two things um, there's the stuff that uh, your subscribers will know well around the bottom line scientific realities and the urgency for systemic change um, particularly when you look at the food system, um, how we grow, um, transport and consume food touches on across all of the topics that I know that you guys are kind of, um, you know, discussing a lot um, mm. through your, with your membership, from waste to water, energy, low carbon, CSR, ethics, technology, climate change, uh, food has a sort of cross-cutting um, yeah of relationship with a lot of these emergent issues in which the general consensus is that we need to do more faster than we have. Um, so that's that's one area of the challenge. Mm-hmm. I think the other area of the challenge um, is what it feels like to run what's often a very small business uh, for, our, for our members. Uh, you know, a lot of our uh, restaurant members are sort of single site or uh, three, four sites. Um, we obviously work with people across the spectrum and we work with some of the kind of three, four hundred site um, organisations, but running a, a small organisation or an organisation of any size that tries to really engage with that range of issues and, and, and think, well, what should I do about that and where do I stand um, is, is really, really tough. Mm. Uh, and I think it's tougher than it felt a few years ago. Mm. I think um, the life cycle of issues in the public domain, how quickly they can rise from relative obscurity to centrally important and, and, the, and the challenges that faces or places on, on a business um, to sort of get ahead of the curve on that it, it is, is really significant. Mm. Um, one of those challenges, I mean, uh, I mean, I suppose this is one that's grown from the last sort of four or five years at least, is that of food waste. Um, it's come much more into the kind of consumer eye in recent years. Um, I mean, it's, a really good, it's a really good example, right? It's, a, it's, it's one of the, you know, you start with a big stat, you know, yeah. I think we throw away your, over a third of the food we make as, as humans. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess it, it's, it's, is that, is that it's the first cause of urgency? Mm. And then that, that forces the issue more centrally into the sort of public eye mm. and then businesses are forced or coerced or inspired to think more fundamentally about mm. what they can do and how can they be on the right side of that yeah and you mentioned some of the figures there and they're pretty shocking actually so we've got some stats from rap here um i mean on average 21 percent of food wasted in a restaurant comes from spoilage 45 percent from food preparation and 34 percent from consumer plates so actually the majority of food waste is being generated potentially before it even arrives on a consumer's plate Um, taking that 45% figure uh, I know it's an average but taking that figure for food preparation and 21% for spoilage should restaurateurs be focusing more on behavior change and perhaps even sort of education in their outlets to, to stop waste at the preparation stage I think it's probably a very uh, flexible question depending on um, what sort of restaurants you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm sure lots of our members would have 
different ideas about why that figure is the where it is at the moment mm. and, and the best ways to drive it down. I think um, you know waste in preparation is obviously so linked to uh, the menu and um, the diversity of ingredients on a menu and the attempt to preempt consumer choice that is reflected by the things you write on a menu. Mm. I'd be interested to think about whether that's preparation, as in chopping the carrots and leaving 45% of them in the bin or, mm. or stuff that gets bought but never put onto a consumer yeah. plate. Because of, um, so, so I think the issue of behaviour change and the issue of preparation are probably more linked than they appear to be in that stat from RAP, but mm -hmm. I, I kind of understand where it's coming from. I think, you know, in terms of the SRA's um, take on this, um, food waste has been a big focus for us since even before it became quite so in the public eye. Mm. Um, mm. I think a couple of years ago we ran a programme called Food Save uh, with some money from the Greater London Authority um, where it was very London focused but we, we ran a campaign called Too Good to Waste and, and pushed doggy boxes out into um, lots of restaurants and tried to encourage them. I guess that was more focused on the kind of behaviour change end of the spectrum. I think if, if you want to look at uh, preparation, I think there's certainly a lot of um, people with ideas in that space. Mm. Uh, we, we offer food waste audits to um, our members in association with a number of different providers um, that have got either largely training-based or technology-based views of the world mm -hmm. and, and ways in which you change. Yeah. Um, so we think it's an area where there's a lot of innovation that, that can help restaurants improve. Mm -hmm. um, and we see our role as perhaps being a kind of convener of some of the things we hear about that our members are doing that works uh, and connecting that back up with other people. Yeah, it's interesting you answered my next question because I was going to ask is there a need for more technology and innovation in this space. We recently um, heard about a, a new app that had launched that was essentially like a smart meter for your food waste um, and it um, allows chefs can use the app to identify the types of food they're throwing away and then combine with the data collected from and an electronic scale, um, a smart meter can essentially tell them the value of what's being discarded. Um, so I suppose, yeah, there's a, a need for um, more kind of technological sort of measurement data-based approaches to managing these issues. Yeah, I, th I think that sounds like a very interesting idea. It, it reminds me rather of these programs you watch on Channel 4 where people have got unhealthy diets and some guru like puts it all in a plastic <laughs> tube and shows yeah. them the horror of what it is they're putting in themselves. I mm. think I think the ability of an app that tracks food waste can can sort of show the gluttony, I guess, mm. of a wasteful system in, in an interesting way. Um, mm. I think you know I'm not really sure of which are the best three or four. Um, I think a lot of our members are using lots of different ideas. Mm. Um, but I think yeah, it's a combo of either technology or just slightly less sexy training. That uh, you know, just sort of working on a behavioural level of how staff are preparing food, mm. working through front of house staff and thinking about how to, uh, you know, promote the choices on menus that are already um, wasting less. Mm. Um, lots of interesting ideas. Yeah, and um, let's talk about another stage of that kind of waste hierarchy: the anaerobic digestion. Um, your SRA predecessor. Mark Leinen um, wrote in an article in The Guardian quite a while ago now, I think he'd, he said that AD can be very inefficient um, and he sort of referred to it as a renewable source of energy, he said that referring to it as a renewable source of energy is, um, is kind of stretching the definition to breaking point. Would you agree with that? Is, is anaerobic digestion uh, a useful solution? Um, I think that and I haven't read Mark's article. Um, it was quite a while ago. It was I'm going back a couple of years, probably. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with the um, perspective that Fair Share have on this, and I'd encourage people to go and check that out. Mm. Um, Fair Share, a, a UK charity feeding around 100,000 people a week through a network of charities, um, food that's being diverted from landfill. Um, and they look at the kind of waste hierarchy, mm -hmm. Um, of which AD is a part, um, but about feeding people first. Um, so I, I think that's probably kind of where it sits. I, th I think there have been some well-documented, slightly perverse, unintended consequences of mm. incentivising AD, which made it sort of more economically viable to send it there than to, to, to feed homeless mm. charities. 
Um, so that's clearly um, that clearly places more doubt over AD's value than the scientific reality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've been involved with the Adbert Association in previous life, and no Lord Redsdale reads me well. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not in his, on his payroll, but um, I, th- I think there's a place for AD within a sustainable energy system, and I, th- I think it's a option around the waste hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in you know in the right place mm, okay so what about consumers then the customers and the diners um, the sustainable restaurant association commissioned some consumer research um, a few years ago now which I keep quoting figures they're quite a few years old here but um, they discovered that food waste um, was at that time the joint top sustainability concern for diners um, along with health and nutrition um, which I found quite surprising um, but it shows that there's clearly an awareness from consumers here. So what do you think needs to happen then to reduce that, going back to those rat figures, that 34% figure of food that's being wasted at the diner stage? Is that the consumer's responsibility? So I think that's a complicated question mm. when it comes to our members and when it comes to the food service and restaurant sector. Mm-hmm. I think um, different members are responding that in very different ways. Um, you know, food waste being such a key and rising issue in the public domain is resulting in certain members really picking that out from within our framework and and really showing more leadership. I think a lot of members, a lot of restaurants out there still struggle to reconcile the um, need to feel like their portion sizes are generous and that our customers are being offered choice. Um, Ultimately when people go into a restaurant they do so to have an enjoyable experience and we um, we support our members' <laughs> desires to provide that for mm. customers. Mm. Uh, so, I, I guess it's only ever going to be a partial answer. I, I think that certain restaurants are going to embody this concern and show real leadership, mm. and certain sections of the consumer customer base will flock there. Mm. And mm. then I think that will lead to more slower change in terms of others, um, you know, picking it up. I, I certainly, you know. We live in a bit of a bubble here in central London, but um, certainly seeing a lot more information about that in, in restaurants that I'm eating in. So yeah. it's, it's clearly starting to pull through. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I mean, I suppose with any sector, there are going to be sustainability leaders, and there are those in the restaurant industry um, that are proving that circularity can work. Um, one that comes to mind is Silo, back down where I used to live in, in Brighton, um, and that's it claims to be the UK's first zero waste restaurant um, and they really have thought of everything with it I went down there a couple of years ago just before it opened two years ago um, I'll provide a link to the piece actually that I wrote in the article that goes alongside this podcast um, but they've got an on-site compost machine, the chefs incorporate nose-to-tail style cookery, supplies are delivered in reusable containers, dishes served on plates made from recycled plastic bags and even the receipts are emailed out rather than printed to save paper, so they have thought of Quite a lot of things. Um, I mean, do we need leaders, more leaders, more innovators and, and pioneers like that, do you think? I mean, I'd absolutely salute the work they're doing down there at Silo. Um, they're not members of the SRA. Okay. Um, I, I think in terms of how that makes us feel, um, you know, we're, we're delighted that um, restaurants are finding their way to sustainability leadership mm. uh, and that they're staying in business and attracting customers through the door. Um, as a result of doing so and serving delicious food presumably I've not eaten there myself Mm. I I, I think that for a restaurant to take such leadership on a single issue uh, is very brave and they've clearly done that through the I guess personal ethics of the people involved behind the scenes and also with an awareness that that's pulling through to a consumer demand level which is going to keep the tables full Mm. I think on average we, we also think it's materially really important that lots of restaurants make lots of small changes which mm. I guess doesn't um, you know it's not as easy to point out and look at um, but certainly can you know achieve a lot more I, I, I think certainly mainstream restaurants struggle to own some of these issues mm. and you know they, they become slightly more problematic think of a you know an Italian restaurant this business model is based on local authentic Italian ingredients mm. Um, and how they reconcile, um, you know, sort of sourcing food locally and local producers. Mm. So, 
Um, I think it's all about business model fit as well as the issues underneath. And I, th- I think wherever we at the SRA can learn from people like Silo and, and start talking and sharing some of that knowledge with more of our, our members to generate a bit more scale, we're, we're, we're keen to do so. Mm. And uh, I'm aware that time's running out for this interview, um, and we've only really discussed food waste up to this point. Um, so I, to finish up, I wanted to discuss the other kind of the major kind of underpinning challenge here, which is that of you know more broadly feeding um, the nine billion people or so worldwide, um, which is obviously going to be a huge challenge. Um, require very different ways of growing and sourcing food. Um, so here's the the million or billion nine billion dollar question for you Andrew um, what's going to be the key to overcoming that challenge and, and really meeting growing demand with supply of food in a sustainable way rather than locusts you mean <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah we've written about them actually Yeah. I mean yeah this is the thing I, I, I guess our view on that is that no one's going to get there alone mm-hmm. and we need to make the food sector more coherent. Um, we're a very small part of that. We work with not even 4% of the restaurant outlets in the UK, mm. yet we're the largest single voice of any. So mm. if that shows you anything, it shows you how fractured the space is yeah. um, and how much need there is to sort of consolidate around those issues and challenges. I, th- I think our kind of hope is that um, the trend that we see in the UK right now um, around knowing where your food comes from and understanding your food, which you know we, we, we've turned a corner in terms of um, consumer attitudes, um, whether that's about sustainability, whether that's about health, or whether that's about food scares like horse meat. You know, mm, yeah. a lot of them point in the same direction, which is about understanding more about where food comes from. Yeah. Um, I think the more that people start to eat mindfully, the more food connects them with some of these big issues. You know, we're not going to feed 7 billion people, 9 billion people by only talking and thinking about the food system either. It's, mm. it's connected into lots of other issues. And, and we think that food can be a very immediate, often very tasty way of connecting with a lot of that debate. Mm. Um, you know, the sort of the big numbers and the millions and the billions are, are, are proven to make people just sort of sit there and shrug. And I, mm. I think uh, food can connect with people a lot more immediately. And, and we hope that by thinking about food and improvements in the food system we can build the right sorts of partnerships um, to help make you know, sustainable change a bit more systemic hmm. interesting okay so um, taking everything we just talked about into account then um, what does the sustainable restaurant of the future look like for you Andrew um, do you envisage a time when the food service industry is operating within a fully circular economy food isn't wasted, restaurants are having perhaps a more positive impact on their their local environment and their communities? Or is that a little too ambitious? I guess uh, we believe that there are sort of 14 key focus areas for any restaurant and that's what our framework is and they show you what we think the important stuff is for restaurants to focus on. It's bits across society, environment and sourcing. Mm. I think restaurants of the future will probably be as diverse as restaurants of the present. Um, I'd, I'd say that more restaurants will start to own and show leadership in some of those areas and, and be obvious points of connection with issues of sourcing or issues of environment or issues of community uh, rather than just ingredients. Mm. Um, we think that they're, they're key places in which people can connect with those issues. Um, but I'd, I'd suggest that it's unlikely that any restaurants starts doing all of them because I think along the way there are lots and lots of questions for a small business to, to take all those on board at the same time and we'd encourage restaurants to you know move towards the future by looking at the framework and thinking about which areas you can most usefully influence which ones resonate most with you as a group of people as a group of owners as a customer base um, and, and focus on those small steps first yeah Okay, and um, in in true circular economy fashion, then let's bring this conversation back round to you, um, Andrew. What would make this new role as chief executive of the Sustainable Restaurant Association a 
success? Where would you like the organisation and perhaps the restaurant industry more broadly to be in, in say, three, five years' time? Well, you know, I've got a personal goal about a number of free lunches that I'm not willing to share (laughs) uh, publicly. But um, I think what would make us successful in three to five years' time, I think what me and the team at the SRA are really trying to do is to move from being an organisation that counts the number of members it has to one which counts the change that our members have Mm. made Mm -hmm. and you know that's a cliche and it's the sort of thing a lot of people say uh, but that's what we're working on and and that's what success is for us Mm -hmm. it's going to mean that we move a little bit towards being a bit more prescriptive with members Um, in 2017 we've got a programme called Food Made Good launching that will highlight the 10 things that make a restaurant good and we'll be working with our members to help them make that change mm-hmm. um, where it is a change for that for that restaurant yeah. and sort of aggregating up the change we want to make and I, I think in three to five years time I'd love to kind of look across our membership base and have, be able to show the the impact that those, they've made together because I think that's where our strength lies in convening and pulling people together mm. um, Okay. Well, and I'd like our members to be you know, more successful businesses as a result of that from, from partnering with us over that journey. Yeah, well, let's hope we uh, let's hope that you and the SRA achieve that goal. Um, wish you best of luck in the, in the new role, Andrew, and uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks very much. Cheers. There you have it then. Um, best of luck to Andrew in his new role, and um, stay tuned to Edie for updates on progress on the state of sustainability in the UK hospitality sector so yeah two quite different interviews um I feel like there was a was a chance to to mix the two together we've um we've had a, a few kind of angles on the site recently about kind of too good to go um that kind of food delivery app where they round up the leftovers from restaurants and pass them on mm. yeah no it's funny you say that because we had um I suppose yeah, there was there was a connection at that point. We the chat with Doddle um, before I turned the audio recorder on. Actually, we he wanted to ask me what my view was on Deliveroo, which is the that kind of it's almost like a sort of peer to peer food delivery service. And he was just interested whether or not we'd kind of heard about them or written about them before. I have heard of them because obviously they were they're quite prevalent in my previous hometown of Brighton. Um, but yeah, we haven't uh, we haven't done too much about them. Um, but I think that the, the delivery of food within the food service industry is huge. Um, emissions again is 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 a huge issue there, and all the other th- elements associated with delivery, so the packaging, um, food that goes to waste. Um, I did once have a delivery from a firm that was delivered to me. They delivered the entire wrong meal, and then didn't come and collect it when I caught and told them it was the wrong meal, and then just delivered me another one. And then I had about. 15 food containers just that were then sat there and just didn't know really what to do with them and so yeah you've got a lot of problems associated with that delivery market and be very interesting to see if there's any movement or kind of fusion I suppose between companies like Doddle, um, Nimba and kind of restaurant industry. Anyway this is turning into a bit of a bumper edition I suppose of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast but uh, no episode would be complete without the usual features of Matt's innovation of the week and George's sustainability success story. Um, let's start with you, George. Um, so hopefully you've picked out a success story which will leave us all feeling a little more positive about the green industrial revolution. I do We're always so, Luke. <laughs> so this week the uh, theme we're centering on is people power. And when okay. we talk about people power, we mean sort of consumer awareness about sustainability and climate change issues, how the uh, public uh, affecting the uh, work of companies and various businesses and how they act in their sustainability activities. So we've had a couple of articles this week um, on this issue. I think the first one was uh, an an article or a survey from Nissan, Mm -hmm. which revealed that um, air pollution, internet search issues had been um, rising heavily in the last decade or so. As in searches around air pollution, That's air quality. Right. Okay, interesting. Mm. And uh, a second story that we had was uh, yesterday, which uh, showed, there was another survey, I think it was a YouGov survey this mm-hmm. time, um, showed that consumers were more likely to uh, pay a premium for uh, products if they knew that they were sustainably produced mm-hmm. and uh, more likely to buy from brands who they knew did have a sustainable sort of um, base. Mm. So 
all this is showing that consumers are more aware of the underlying climate change issues and sustainability issues. Uh, and I suppose you could say they're increasingly willing to vote with their wallets, as, uh, yeah, as it yeah. were, um, when buying into brands. And mm, no, it's interesting. And it, it reminds me, Matt, of uh, the article we were writing and actually one we're also scoping, a, a broader article about looking at the kind of um, search trends, key search trends online for key terms, because I suppose that's um, quite a good barometer for measuring how interested the public are in key issues. And it's very interesting when you run searches on, on Google Trends, which allows you essentially to have a look at how much global search interest there is in certain terms when you when you run the terms kind of climate change. And I think as well, it's it's good that it's happening now. It's perhaps a little little bit late to the to the field of play, but um, I think whilst we've got this big global um, movement, the ratification of the Paris Agreement in effect, it's probably good that this is happening now and the public become aware of it. Unlike you know, if you look at the search results after Brexit, I think it was found that you know what, what's uh, what's Article Fifty was popping up <laughs> yeah. quite a lot of search terms. Yeah, you do it's get good, some funny results. It's good that the public are becoming aware of this before we've reached that tipping point. Mm, true, um, and it links nicely back to that interview actually with Andrew from the SRA. Um, a survey from the SRA. We, we obviously we mentioned it back in that interview, um, but I think that found that. I think this might have been a separate survey to the one that we discussed actually in the interview, but they'd found that um, more than 90% of consumers had said that they were more likely to go to a restaurant that publicised its environmental impacts and the provenance of its food, which is, you know, 90% is, you know, business uh, thinking of that from a kind of commercial perspective. That's huge, very significant. Um, Another major study produced last year, I think, by a company called Ebiquity Global, or Equity Ebiquity Global, I think. Um, they interviewed about 10,000 people, I think, in nine of the world's largest countries, um, including the UK. And they generated some amazing findings. We covered this on the site, and it was all about the kind of interest and awareness of key CSR issues. Um, I think they discovered that around 80% of people would buy a product from an unknown brand if it had strong CSR commitments. So in that sense, at least, um, sustainability can equal profitability. And that increased customer demand um, is yet another trump card, I suppose, for sustainability professionals to be able to play when they're trying to obtain boardroom buy-in with key sustainability projects and initiatives. You've got you to make the brand blue as well. I remember, <laughs> I remember one of my right, early yeah. days here. Make the brand blue. What do you mean? Make, make the brand blue. Make your make your kind of packaging your your products. You make it blue. I remember. I remember writing an article when I first started about how consumers associate certain colours with certain things. Hmm. So, like red and yellow is a very kind of passionate product. Whereas if you go blue or green, it's more likely to hold connotations with the environment. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's no coincidence. And Facebook, Twitter. Amazon. <laughs> <Yeah. Probably. laughs> Interesting. Nice one, George. Um, okay, so for our final stop on this week's podcast, um, Matt, you're now going to wow us again with your green innovation of the week. The ED regulars among you will know that Matt writes a regular feature for ED on the best green innovations of the week. And he's picked out one of the innovations that he thinks really stands out this week. Um, in previous episodes, we've had car eating. Buses, cow stomach bricks, orange peel packaging is one of my favourites. Fish powered LEDs. What's next, Matt? And please don't put me off my lunch. This uh, this one is slightly more more simple. Okay. Um, there's no there's no like amazing tagline to it, and it's it's not necessarily a, a new innovation, but I think it ties in quite well with this whole consumer or wider public awareness. Mm-hmm. There's a, a video for a company called Straw Life doing the rounds on social media. It's plastered all over my Facebook page and straw life straw life okay and <clears throat> the concept is it's a straw funnily <laughs> enough <laughs> um, which you can basically take to uh, any old kind of pond or lake maybe I'm not, not entirely sure if it works with salt water stuff but any kind of contaminated water and okay. you can drink the water straight from the lake you just put this straw in the ground and it has this kind of hollow um, purification system in the straw it's, it's probably about um, nine inches long in, in length, uh, quite a bit wider than your average straw. Obviously, it kind of looks more like a flute than anything, but uh, <laughs> okay. but it purifies. It can absorb. I think it's a Danish company, um, mm-hmm. and they claim it absorbs ninety nine point nine 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 nine. I don't know how far it goes, mm-hmm. which it's very specific in terms of 
how much it can purify on the go. So you just stick the straw and it purifies. By the, by the time the water's reached the mouth system, it's purified the water and you can drink it. Wow. So instant so, access to clean water. Yeah, potential implications there globally is huge. Exactly. And I think the reason why it's so different from the others is it's not a concept. It's on sale. It's £14 a... So it's actually commercialised. Yep. Yeah, it's okay. been around for a couple of years. But like I said, it's, it's finally just started to pick up amongst the masses. Wow. Um, and... They claim it can you can drink a thousand liters of waters in 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 its lifespan, wow. and yeah, like you said, the ramifications there, especially with the SDGs, you know, clean mm. water supply, mm. <clears throat> you know, dragging out of poverty, the um, not having to walk, you know, especially rural rural Africa, not having to walk however many miles to a well every day, mm. is a potential game changer. Can you fuse this straw with those Nesquik straws that allow you to uh, when you suck them, they suddenly turn to a sort of strawberry banana milkshake? No, I was, I was hoping you could kind of mix it with, with the, um, the old Teletubby bowls where they drink their custard out of and just, just have a nice bowl of water where you kind of, and the bowl is the straw. That's that's the next one. Add, add the volume to it. Yeah. But um, that's the one I think, just because how, how far along it is and how simple it is. Yeah, creating yeah. Such a no, making one. it sound gimmicky, but I mean, the simple, it's so simple, but can be so effective, isn't mm. it? But I do I do just want to draw like quickly as well to what Audi's doing. Um mainly because I drive over so many potholes every day on the way to work. They've, they've essentially um, introduced a new damper system. Audi, did you say? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said Aldi. Yeah. <laughs> Audi, the car maker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, this is fascinating. Yeah, so. um, they've introduced a new damper system, which basically turns all kinetic energy that's generated every time you go over a bump or down mm. a pothole, or if you're a terrible driver, mount a curb. Mm. No comment. Um but they they turn all of that into kind of electricity in the engine that's used to drive the car as you go. Mm. Yeah, my road's going to be a renewable energy haven. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there you go. Next time you want to moan to the council <laughs> about potholes, think about think about the long long yeah. game here. Great. Okay, so um, there you have it. Uh, it. Just about wraps up this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, thanks again to you both, Matt and George. Uh, Matt, you're now off on holiday again. I'm saying that for the second week running. Um, where are you going this time? Uh, a couple of day trips planned. Uh, Southampton, Bristol. That's a two-day trip. That's just going to be Yeah. Okay. Um, well, George and I will be here. Um, don't want to end on a downer, but I think next week we may have to be taking a break from the podcast. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because Matt's off, but also because I'm going to be out and about and uh, quite a bit throughout the week. And, um, well, to put it simply, George, you can't be trusted left in this studio anyway. So, uh, no, so we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks' time for another episode of Sustainable Business Covered. It's worth reminding you all that this podcast is now available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered. And you are still able to download them all directly from the ed.net website and listen to them all for free. Anyway, until next time, it's uh, goodbye from George. Goodbye. Goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.